Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview was a real treat. It's with Diana Neal and Richard Poplek, and we talk about their new film, Influence. It premiered at Sundance uh, this year, 2020, and it's going to be having its Canadian premiere at the online Hot Docs uh, Festival this year during this crazy COVID era that we find ourselves in. And you're going to be able to access the film through that platform, but also uh, Hot Docs at Home, CBC. It's going to be airing on GEM as well. So stay tuned for what I what I think is a brilliant interview. Am I allowed to say that about my own interviews? But conversation, how's that? A brilliant conversation with Diana and Richard and so many insights into disinformation and fake news and this this current place we find ourselves in. We talk about politics, we talk about civic engagement, about you know, being controlled versus free. We talk about geopolitical fixers what is that we talk about disinformation and aristotle makes it in there including uh, talking about things that are wanky and intellectual we we talk about information overload and the glut lies and untruth the 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 weaponization of information we talk about process and curating and, and disseminating this information and why knowledge is is so often seen and viewed as as connected to, to power we talk about the politics of spectacle and and and, and martin luther luther's notion about the moral arc and we talk about the luxury of hope as well and i i trust if richard's listening he'll be smiling about that as well as we step into this wonderful engaging and thoughtful film entertaining film about history a not so distant history and and why we need to start paying attention and why we need to push back and why we need to write those letters and 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 be engaged and and ask the right questions ask better questions peel back those layers and and go in a little deeper so uh stay tuned it's is a, a fascinating film and i hope uh, an engaging conversation for you uh, about the new film called influence uh, going to be uh, premiering here in canada at the online hot docs festival coming right up don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my writing and my speaking you can order a copy of real changes incremental there and I would love it if you did that. And uh, don't also forget uh, about face-to-facelive.ca. We're over 500 published interviews now. You can access those anytime you like. Uh, sign up for the newsletter. It comes out once a month. And if you can support us on Patreon, we sure would appreciate that. And if you can't do that, I would really appreciate a review on iTunes. It, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Sign up for the newsletter. Leave us a review. Send this on to your friends. Uh, social mediate the heck out of these interviews. I would... Um, 
be thrilled if you could do that for us. We can't kind of do that without you spread the news uh, about face-to-face. Things are growing here, and uh, I hope that they're going to continue. I'm not losing any steam. I'm going to be uh, continuing to step into new interviews, uh, I hope. Oh, who knows, for the next 5, 10, or 15 years. Who knows where podcasting will be then. So uh, that that's about it. And, of course, I also appear on Rabble, rabble.ca. You got news for the rest of us, a whole host of other thinkers and writers and bloggers there you can uh, tune in there to find out more about what's happening rebel.ca and uh, last but not least uh, for sure and uh, if you want to advertise with face-to-face you can definitely do that we are now uh, looking for sponsors and currently actively bringing those in the door you can advertise online with us on the website you can advertise uh, through our newsletter or actually shout outs we're getting hundreds of thousands of unique visits a month to the website so you know might be something worth considering if if you're interested please reach out to me you can do that through uh, my email address david at sochange.ca but i'm also uh, accessible through the face-to-face website coming right up uh, richard poplack and diana neal talking about their new film influence well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by two very special guests. I think, uh, I think actually on the other side of the world, I think I can say that we have Diana Neal and Richard Poplack here to talk about their new film, Influence, and uh, going to be a Canadian premiering, I guess, at CB uh, on CBC Hot Docs at Home, and and also a part of the Hot Docs Festival this year, 2020, in Canada. Diana, Richard, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Jeff. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on face to face. We, I'm not sure what number this interview is going to be, but but I'm pretty proud of the fact that we're close to probably around 510 interviews later. Face to face has been going on for for a few years now, and and uh, it's always just such a, a pleasure. And I always step into these conversations with with eyes wide open, and I hope ears wide open as well. So thank you for uh, the, the the time and the commitment and the passion and the effort behind your film Influence, and thanks for a great film. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. It's been a journey. So I bet it's been a journey. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty common uh, response it seems to me from fil- from filmmakers. So so world premiere I guess at at Sundance uh, earlier this year. Um, the film you've you've had Q and A's. I'm sure you've done lots of interviews. Can can you can you just I don't know. Can you maybe pull out a soundbite or two for us, maybe, or just a way to provide a little bit of context around this film? I'm going to assume a lot of our listeners right now haven't seen it yet and are wondering if they're going to hit play. So let's let's give them a good reason to step into it. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, the, the reason to hit play is because this is, I think, one of, uh, sort of about the most prevalent issue of our time. And that is the disinformation game. Uh, it's the story of Lord Tim Bell, who was the most notorious um, public relations executive turned geopolitical fixer. And he ran a company called Bell Pottinger for a long time. Uh, they were a PR firm that would work for anyone in the world under any circumstances and do anything. They were the ultimate geopolitical fixers. So um, all of the stuff that we talk about now is a matter of course fake news, disinformation, misinformation, all the stuff swirling around COVID-19. All of that stuff has a long, long, long genesis that stretches all the way back to Aristotle. But Bell Pottinger Mm. were the guys that helped in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. They helped weaponize disinformation in a way we hadn't really seen before. So I love the fact that right out of the gate, you you basically in the edit you you, you take a soundbite out of an interview with Lord Tim Bell, and he says something to the effect of, "And help me out if I get the people wrong here, but I he, he, I think the quote is almost a direct quote is I have my own morals." Now, yeah. in on on one level, that kind of makes sense, right? We all sort of have our worldviews, our backgrounds, our contexts. You know, you 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 brought up Aristotle. Uh, I've been studying philosophy for years, Richard. I love that. You know, we all have sort of these these, I guess, the the bedrocks we stand on. I didn't get that sense from this guy. <laughs> so when so when he said I have my own morals, there was like this big question mark, and we we're we're not even you know what three four minutes into the film. Uh, in, uh, interestingly, in an early draft of, of the script that Diana and I were playing with, we uh, once we'd done all our research and done some preliminary interviews and we're looking to sort of juggle things together, 
we uh, wanted to base the film ironically around twelve the twelve Aristotelian virtues. Um, oh wow! The, yeah, so th- there was going to be twelve chapters, each one a virtue that uh, Aristotle had had promulgated. Um, it was a little too uh, let's let, you know a little too on the nose, wanky and intellectual, <laughs> but it really helped us get get to the sense of it. when 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 Lord Bell spoke about values. Uh, he, when he spoke about morals, he did not mean them in the same sense that you and I would. Why well, I hope. Yeah, it, well, it's and it's also interesting that you you bring up the fame question sort of at the end of you bookend the film. So you start that sort of with the same kind of it seems to me, uh, you know, step into this this worldview of this guy. What 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 were her, his morals? What what were where? You know, was it his partner, his wife, his kids? Did he have a check and balance? Was there any kind of sacred text in his background that he went to? You know, you guys were going to go to the virtue ethics of Aristotle. Um, what 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 are some of your Ironically. thoughts on that? I mean, you had, some, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You you guys had some pretty pretty incredible access to to him. Clearly, mm-hmm. um, I, I would imagine too, an awful lot didn't make it into the film. Yeah, we had five days of interviews with him, in fact. Uh, we, we got very lucky in that regard. We were initially promised three. Um, and so when we just kept showing up at his house and he and, he and his wife kept letting us in, we were uh, both surprised and relieved. Um, but yes, it was there were pretty illuminating five days. And there was, there was plenty of stuff that we wouldn't even be able to put in this film, even if we wanted to, because it's, uh, yeah, um, the guy has a very specific sense of humor. And to be fair, he's a very charming man. But when you talk about uh, what he cared about and what was important to him, I guess I'd have to say uh, power and uh, fame. You know, he says at the, towards the end of the film that he's always been drawn to, to, to power and uh, he's always felt that it was the right thing to do to, to you know, go towards the light, as he called it, and, and, and stay by that light and let it shine on you because, you know, that, that's what makes life interesting. That's certainly what made his life interesting. Um, and I think just, just by virtue of the way he dropped names, you could tell that it was very important to him to be someone who contributed to the world, sure. And he did. He had an incredibly illustrious career and he did some incredibly interesting things. Um, the fact that a lot of those things were morally questionable is, you know, that's, that is the, the, the bigger debate. But I think for him, it was really being able to call himself uh, someone who was able to elicit and and curry favor with powerful people. People, um, and that was yeah. That I think certainly bore him out through his entire career. Uh, yeah, interestingly, he started out as someone who I think didn't have that much direction in life. He was um, a jazz trumpeter for a little while and then ended up actually physically throwing the trumpet in the trash. I think he said, um, because he just wasn't any good. Um, and eventually his mother kicked him out of the house at 18 and said, go get a job. Um, and he became a runner in a, in an ad agency. And then from there kind of, kind of just blossomed in, 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 in advertising, figuring out that he was a really good salesman, um, being so charming, he could, he could very easily talk his way through pretty much any boardroom. And that was, uh, that's what kicked him off. Yeah, so he's, he's like sort of the quintessential madman uh, accounts guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the right. interesting thing right. about him is is that he understood fame and money, both of which he acquired quite a lot of in his life and lost a lot of in his life as well. But he understood fame and money as being the bedrocks of power. What interested Tim, what fascinated Tim, what Tim was seduced by, and what Tim used to seduce others was power. Um, and when we say power, what we're talking about is some of the most powerful people, um, I would say, in the last 40, 50 years. We're talking about Margaret Thatcher. We're talking about his proximity to Vladimir Putin, uh, for, uh, against whom he ran a very successful um, exile uh, opposition campaign in London in the, late two, in, in the mid-2000s. Um, the, the weird thing about Lord Bell's life, when you look at it in context, is how many powerful people he came close to uh, and how much work he did for them all over the world. So one of the things we're trying to say about power in this film um, is the fact that the connections between the powerful, between the global elite, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here because this is not what I'm going for at all, but these connections are very, very, very um, articulated. If you carry a letter in Margaret Thatcher's handwriting and go, Mm. say, unannounced to the presidential palace in Santiago, Chile, during curfew, 
the dictator, Augusta Pinochet, will let you into the presidential palace. Now that's power. And that's exactly what happened with Lord Bell in Santiago in, in the mid-80s. It's, it's so interesting to me that, that he uses this image, metaphor, symbol of light. Now, I don't think I misunderstood it, but light for him is a step towards that power, a step closer towards that fame. It seems to me, whereas, you know, Aristotle or Plato or, you know, many other moral philosophers would say light, that's, that's exactly the antithesis of, mm -hmm. of what we were going for, right? So when Plato leads you up out of the allegory of the cave, it's into the light, it's into knowledge, it's into wisdom, right? And, 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 and moral living, whereas uh, Lord Tim Bell, for him, the light is actually the spotlight, isn't that the, the vanity of the spotlight, I guess you could say. That's that's very true, but but I would develop that sort of intellectual concept one step further. And I think what Diana and I, when we talk about light now, we think about um, transparency. And you can extrapolate mm -hmm. transparency in the context of this film one step further, and that is information overload, the glut, right? The one glut, of the things yes. that, that Lord Bell and Bell Pottinger did very well, especially towards the end of the, their uh, tenure as the as one of the most powerful PR firms in history, was to flood the zone with bullshit, to flood the zone with endless, endless, endless amounts of information. And now, now those tactics have basically become de rigueur. So the, where initially Diana and I may have fell into the old journalistic trap of thinking of blanket transparency as a good thing, as access to information um, as a good thing, We've learned the very hard way over the course of the research for this project that transparency, that information overload, that so-called knowledge can be very dangerous as well. Mm. Yeah, so, look, it comes so, down to what the, what the intention behind it is, of course. You know, and, sure. But we're not by no means saying that, uh, that you know, too much information is, is a bad thing. I think the, 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 the question really is what is the purpose of that information uh, and, and what is it really what – it, what's the benefit of it? What is it actually – giving the world in terms of knowledge, in terms of usefulness. Uh, and I think that's something that, that the, the, the disinformation reality that we live in now um, has kind of completely subverted, which is as long as there's noise in the space, as long as there's information right. swirling around you, it's, it's very difficult to make good decisions and to understand what's best for your well-being and the well-being of your society and of your family and of your community. Um, and to just create that noise uh, is is a way of distracting and obfuscating that is has been extremely successful as we've seen uh, in these massive world events in the last four years the Trump election Brexit and now COVID nineteen and David yeah, we just, you, you know it is sorry I, I just it, it just to yeah no go Richard further. yeah go uh, it, it is astonishing that that these things that we used to these old shibboleths knowledge is power information is is information is a good thing it's a public good it's 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 brain nutrition. Knowledge and information no longer bear the same meaning they did 10 years ago. I mean, to, to us, that's just an astonishing fact that, that knowledge or, or, or rather information, how, how we process it, how it's curated, how it's disseminated, these things have become weapons. And to us, that is um, a remarkable historical development. Yeah, process, curate, and disseminate. I mean, near the end of the film, I think, and I can't remember who's questioning it. Maybe, maybe um, um, was it uh, Marianne, the, the the journalist from the Marianne Daily Maverick, Tom, our colleague? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if it was her or not, but um, you know, something about no one's measuring it, no one understands it. I mean, how do the questions raised? How do we even recognize what's true? anymore if if i remember sort of that's my my that's my peckian paraphrase there sorry about that that's fine it's a it's a, actually a gentleman called joel harding who is um an intelligence expert in the united states and, and was deeply involved it. in um in a lot of their ops over the last 20, 10 20 years um who who commented on the iraq campaign actually that bell pottinger right. was paid for yeah a uh, very very interesting guy well, and in some ways, kind of the the, the ironic weight behind that is pretty pretty clear, right? Intelligent expert talking about we can't measure it, um, right. exactly. we can't understand I mean, that's what's it. So it's, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> it's so so troubling. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So 
So did you feel as one of my favorite documentaries, and I've got quite a few on that list, it would be really probably hard for me to do a top 10, but I think in my top 10 would be Errol Morris's Fog of War with with, Mm -hmm. uh, um, McNamara. I was actually in Cambodia when I saw it, uh, when I saw it come out and was just, uh, what is that, maybe 2000, something like that. And he talks about uh, L, uh, Lord Tim Bell, LTB. Can I call him LTB? Um, yeah. Out of the gate, he says, he, says, uh, he says something about maybe I'll be better judged if I tell the truth. Do you think, mm-hmm. I mean, I got that sense from McNamara a, a little bit as Morris goes on through the film Fog of War. Is did he really want that? Like, was he really sort of trying to come clean? I love Diana too, by the way, that you said he and his wife continue to let you guys into the house. So you must've been doing something right. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe for the first four days, the, the first day was um, strained. Let's put it that way. Oh, wow. But, um, Interesting. No, we, we, we ended that particular visit. We ended on good terms. Uh, and then unfortunately the relationship soured um, some months later, I think when it became you know, when I think the stakes were raised and uh, I think uh, Lord, Lord Bell's wife, Jackie, you know, I think, I think it, be, the, it became clear to her that she would have to deal with this um, probably on her own because he then passed away um, in August of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I think, you know, when it comes to Errol Morris's Fog of War, which, which I, I think is probably on everyone's top 10 list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously it was, it was sort of top of mind, at least when we started conceiving of this, of this film. But, you know, the, the, the weird and rather terrible thing to say about how things have progressed uh, since Morris sat down with McNamara is that the bullshit industry has, has only tripled down since then. Um, the, the, the lines between truth and lies uh, have completely been obliterated uh, to no small extent because of men like Lord Bell. So I don't think we were under any illusions whatsoever that we were going to have um, some old dude sit down and completely spill his guts to us. Mm. Um, he proved slippery to the last. Um, mm. There were so many things that he said to us that when we when it got down to the fact check stage, just didn't just didn't hold up. Mm. Um, right. Almost everything he said came with the yes but. Um, he refused to countenance the fact that he may have done anything wrong over the course of his career. Now, none of us can say we're blameless, um, except, of course, for Lord Timothy Bell. So the the unfortunate aspect of the I'm going to tell the truth and nothing's going to stop me aspects of the film were that he remained slippery to the last, which to us is, of course, entirely emblematic of the type of person he was and the cut, the type of work that he did. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, you know, we, we included the, the blatant, the, the most blatant of, of the, the kind of untruths or the, the, frankly, the lies that he told where Richard kind of pushes back on one of his statements. And he then without batting an eyelash, just, just says, well, yeah, you know, I did do that. Um, I did it 10 years earlier and you know, there's, there's no sense of kind of shame about it. It's just, you know, it's, it, to me, the way I kind of see it, because I thought about this a lot, is he's a strategist, you know, to the last. I mean, and I'd love to tell you a story about that, actually, uh, in a minute. You know, it, to me, he's, he's, it's always about the game. He'll, he'll say something, and it's almost like he, he takes such joy from being in the conversation because he gets to, he gets to put out his, his kind of, you know, he makes his play, and then he watches what you do, and if he respects it, then he'll, he'll acquiesce. Um, and if he well, doesn't, it, then know, he'll it, disregard it. I don't love to hear the story. Uh, and Diana, it makes me immediately think, and I have a few friends who are lawyers and they're probably going to smile at my not so nuanced understanding of the work they do. But there, there's in, in, in the legal world, it seems to me, well, I'm being paid, therefore I need to win. This isn't about necessarily about my ethics or morality, if you want to make that distinction. This mm-hmm. is about stepping in. I've got a client. It's about strategy. It's a chess move, right? right? Exactly. It, on some level, it's a... I would imagine it's quite an energizing and adrenalized kind of a game. I, I was blown away. And that's by the exactly way. what it is. Right. Game. Right. I was, ahead, I was blown away, blown away when you had him, you were talking about, I had no idea that he had been, you know, in the seventies up into the eighties in, in, in Chile and Pinochet. And I had a former philosophy professor who, who lost family members under, under that regime. And so when he just sort of cavalierly almost talked about the great missing people, and then said, oh, you know, nothing to do with me. Wow, really? Like, and, and you still sleep at night is my yeah, question. 
Very well, I'm sure. Yeah, there's, there's a sense of, <laughs> of being able to comp compartmentalize things, right? He wasn't mm -hmm. part of that campaign. He didn't defend Pinochet during that time. He wasn't the guy who, who was, you know, spinning the coup, <laughs> you know, so it's easy for him to say, well, I have nothing to do with it. Therefore, it's, it's of no concern to me. Uh, and if that's his reputation, then that's something that I need to, you know, it's a, it's a problem that I need to solve um, by being the smarter person in this game. And if you don't like it, then that, 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 that's your, those are your morals, not mine. Don't force them on me. Don't force uh, it on me, right? But David, you made a very, very, um, uh, very, very good uh, observation about him being similar in tactics to to legal professionals. Um, one of the things that Bell Pottinger did very well, uh, especially in in the latter years, was to combine forces with very, very powerful legal firms in London. I'm talking about Shillings and and Carter Ruck in particular, where it would be sort of a one-two punch. Bell Pottinger would do the spin. Carter Rock or Shillings would do the litigious work on the background. Now, mm. uh, I was actually on the back of, of, of exactly that type of campaign um, long before this, the, the Bell Pottinger story in South Africa broke, where I'd put out um, something in an article. I'd get an email from uh, some junior partner at uh, Bell Pottinger saying, cease and desist, or we'll sick our lawyers on you. That's exactly how they worked. Um, the, 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 as it, as it progressed, as it weaponized, um, public relations became a species of legal action, mm. um, a species of uh, litigiousness. So uh, the spin and the legal aspect were one holistic package. Right. And you see that very clearly uh, in the leaks, David. So uh, yeah, just, just for your listeners, uh, just to give some context, the film, the provenance of the film was this tranche of leaked emails that came to light in 2017 um, during a very, very difficult uh, time politically for our country. We had this president, uh, Jacob Zuma, who was, you know, just insanely corrupt. And we knew, uh, journalists knew, the public knew that he had this, uh, a very close relationship with this family of Indian businessmen called the Guptas. Um, and then this leak of, of emails from, from one of their servers or from, from, their, yeah, from their emails uh, came to our editor, Daily Maverick, Branko Brickage. And um, he put a team together of journalists from around the country and they started to kind of excavate these emails. And what you see looking through them, when you kind of, when you take the Bell Pottinger stuff out of that and you, you just look at those was, you know, I would say probably half to a third of them is, is, inter, is interactions between the Gupta faction, um, Bell Pottinger and Schillings or Bell Pottinger's lawyers deciding, okay, this journalist has said this thing in this publication today, what's the strategy? Okay, Bell Pottinger is going to going to get the lawyers to, to send this legal letter. And I mean, most of those emails are just them asking for legal action against any and all commentary, basically, by journalists during that time, um, about, I guess, a year before the leaks happened. Um, so while they were being paid this enormous retainer to do this work in South Africa, they were just, you know, they were, they were putting out the messaging, fomenting this, this race war, basically, in South Africa. But at the same time, they had their lawyers taking down or threatening or, or you know, threatening legal action against the journalists who were obviously looking into this. So it's just very interesting to see that tactic and, and how successfully it, it works. Hence, I guess, hence the t one of the reasons for the title of the film, Influence. Right. Right, exactly. Um, Diana, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the story that you wanted to sure. unpack? Sure. About so, strategist, I think it was connected to strategist to the last. Yeah. Um, so I don't know which version of the film you saw. The, the version we took to Sundance was a, a longer cut, um, about 106 minutes, I guess. And we subsequently cut it down to 90 minutes. It's a much kind of uh, more concise cut, I guess you could say. Um, and in the but in the original cut. Um, Bell references uh, this businessman, the South African businessman called Johan Rupert, who's one of the richest men in Africa, one of the richest in the world, very, very successful. Um, and he was, he was a long-term acquaintance of, of Tim Bell's and his company, Richemont, had, uh, was essentially uh, Bell Pottinger's client for 20 years. Hmm. Um, and this gets a little complicated, but I'll try to keep it simple. So, so the, the campaign in South Africa involved creating a race. It was a race-based campaign um, using terms like white monopoly capital and radical economic transformation to basically assert that, um, you know, all of the wealth in South Africa still remained in the hands of white people and that black people were losing out. And that in, through this, the Guptas were trying to empower 
people of color um, and that they were the victims essentially of this white monopoly capital. And Johan Rupert was made to be the face of that kind of campaign, uh, one of them at least, which is deeply ironic if you think about it because he, you know, he's the client of the company that is now essentially smearing him in the press and people like him um, you know, from one end of the field to the other. So it was this incredibly confusing campaign. Um, but, you know, I think Bell saw his endorsement as a way of proving his innocence in the whole debacle, because up until the last, he tried to say that it wasn't his campaign, he wasn't involved, he was just kind of overseeing and was taken out of that role. And so he, he was, uh, when it all came to light, what had happened, and he went on uh, BBC Newsnight, I guess it was in September, about two or three months after the whole, um, the company had kind of shut down and was was going into liquidation. He was asked to appear on BBC Newsnight, and um, during the interview, his phone his phone, which was switched on, rings in his pocket. <laughs> and uh, it's just it's re- it's a remarkable scene. Like it's almost as if you guys set him up for that. Like it's just it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But anyway, well, go ahead. So we, you know, we watching it for the first time. I, I personally just assumed that he was, you know, he forgotten to switch his phone off, or you know, he's kind of he's getting older. He's maybe a bit nervous. Whatever. He, you know, it was a mistake because it rings twice and he kind of fumbles over it. But in the first instance, he shows the phone to the interviewer, which is highly unorthodox. I mean, who does that? Shows the phone to her to show her who's calling. Um, and she doesn't take the bait. She just kind of she just breezes through it and carries straight straight on. So he puts the phone back in his pocket, and. Then in a subsequent interview that we we shot with him, um, uh, the question is asked, who was on the phone? And he says, oh, it was, Johan, he was, it was Johan Rupert. He was messaging to say, thank you for being the only honorable person in the story. Now, I mean, that is some next level genius strategy. If you think about it, this is the guy who's been exoriated by this campaign uh, despite being the client of Bell Pottinger, who is now messaging him to say, I believe you and you did the right thing and I stand by you. And, um, you know, it's, it's just always been so interesting to me to know, you know, whether he set it up, which, you know, I'm pretty, you know, my guess is he, he, he did and that he got him to call him at just the time that he knew that he would be on this show and then he could say, oh, look, it's Johan Rupert calling. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he, I'm the good wow. guy and this proves it, um, which is pretty, pretty ballsy. So, so, so you're saying by, by design for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. I reckon. <laughs> well, so does Johan Rupert. That, that's pretty wild. Uh, I've, uh, I have a friend who's an entertainer. He's a comedian and, uh, it reminds me, uh, I, I was at the back of the room and he said, you know what, T- tonight, can you call me when I'm on stage? So <laughs> I actually <laughs> phoned him from the back of the room and I walked outside sort of the, the main, the, the main part of the building into the lobby. And we had this conversation and I don't really know what he did with it on stage, but it reminds wow. me of that. It's just so sort of in the moment, but it shows you how, 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 how carefully, constructed i mean to your point earlier you you bring it out in the film that this idea of weaponization takes on very Mm -hmm. different forms absolutely absolutely um so you guys there's so many other things i I want to address and talk about but you you do bring in this idea of art uh, art versus science and i'd love to hear where you stand on that after years in journalism after uh, uh, working on this film for 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 a few years several years i would imagine you know there's a notion an assumption made that uh, and i think the direct quote that this is no longer guesswork now right we can we could this is a workable weapon i think was the line right Right. and Mm -hmm. and we can step we can step in now would you say that still is the case? Uh, is it becoming more workable, more weaponized, more, I guess, oh, almost black and white in a sense? Absolutely. So uh, if, if we look at the genesis just in the last 50 years, um, leading out of the Nazi campaigns uh, in World War II, where influence, while uh, heavily focused on um, making crowds do what you wanted them to, was still effectively an art. There was no science behind what the Nazis were doing in terms of inciting um, racial or ethnic hatred within the German population group. What they were doing was, was still what people had been doing for years. Uh, they had the newsreel, which they could use. They had cinema, which they, they could use, music, et cetera, et cetera. But those were effectively old tools. We move out of there into the age of television, where we have television advertising. Television advertising effectively turns propaganda to an art form, right? You have the 30 second or a minute to tell a very distinct story. And that story functions in a, in a, in a propaganda way to incite people to do things. Uh, 
But leading into the 90s, you had a bunch of people in the West, and this is leaving aside what the KGB were doing in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, and they are leagues ahead of where we are, the Russians. But in the West, what you had was a group of people, one of whom was Nigel Oakes, who ended up setting up a strategic communications laboratory, which would in the end become the holding company for the world-famous Cambridge Analytica. Nigel Oakes, who is interviewed extensively in our film, explained to us how in the mid-90s, he and others started to aggregate social sciences within academia to learn how to get crowds to behave exactly the way you wanted them to. In other words, what they were doing was taking the research that was out there, compiling it, turning it into effectively, you could say, weaponized surveys that would tell you exactly you need, what you needed to know about the prejudices of crowds. They were not interested in individual behavior. What David Peck has for breakfast at 7.20 a.m. is of absolutely no interest to them. What is of interest is that David's entire neighborhood gets in their car at 8 o'clock and drives over the bridge at 8.03. So it's manipulating crowds that became the focus, manipulating audiences that became the focus. As that progressed, it starts to meet around about 2000. The internet, where companies like Google and later Facebook start to collect and collate what they call behavioral surplus. In other words, the stuff we do online. Every time we type a search into Google, what, what they give to us is the answer to what we're searching for. What they collect from us is all the residual data. What time are we looking for? What, what are we looking for? When are we looking for it? Where are we looking for it from? So all of that behavioral surplus is collated and that is turned into a raw product that is refined and sold down the line. Call it big data, right? So the confluence between the development of behavioral science and behavioral surplus combines to form what we could call at this stage the ability to weaponize information and to manipulate crowds in what you could arguably call a scientific way. I love the um I love the shot you you include of of Donald Trump hugging the flag and I think the voiceover talks about politics becoming theater and I mean is this this is kind of would you would you guys agree this is sort of bringing the two together that scientific approach that 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 crowds behave in a particular way but let's throw in a little bit of comedy and art and and, and rhetoric and hyperbole as well right well, I, I think you make a good point there because effectively what Cambridge Analytica did was pass on to the Trump campaign a whole bunch of collated data about how Americans were thinking and how they were willing to behave under certain conditions. At the same time, you had essentially a clown, a buffoon, who had, and you've got to give it to Donald Trump, perfected the politics of spectacle. Right? Something that, that academics, journalists, and, 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 and media critics had been complaining about for years, this idea of the politics of spectacle. Our understanding that this would eventually eat away at the core bedrock of democracies. But now, what this buffoon, this clown, who in ordinary circumstances one would like to think would never have won so much as a, a, a mayoral race in a tiny town in Arkansas, instead is the leader of the free world. Why? Because that spectacle is now married to a scientific basis of how to get crowds to behave a certain way at a certain time. And I think what, what, Nigel, what Nigel understood very early, I mean, as early as the late 80s, um, after having worked at Saatchi and Saatchi as well, uh, the advertising company in London where Lord Bell was also at, um, was that understanding crowds and, and, and human attitudes um, is different to understanding their behavior. Um, and mm, where advertising yes. was very successful in, in attitudinal change, you know, what, do you want to drink a Coke or a Pepsi? Is your attitude towards Coke or Pepsi, you know, which one do you like more? Um, it, it becomes, you know, what, what really interested him and what, what propelled him into this so-called science was, was that's great, but how do you actually then affect change in their behavior? Um, because that, of course, is, is 
I guess, the holy grail of this kind of work. It's it's great if they like something or don't, but but then you, you know you want them to then make that that connection and and take that next step, which is the action. Um, and that was the critical shift, I think, away, as you say, from art towards science. Uh, was that was that uh, distinction? Well, you know, it's really interesting. So Nigel, I found fascinating. I mean, he talked, I think he actually talks about the influence as an uh, influence industry. And, and, um, you know, the, the, and I think you were just talking about this, Diana, about, you know, in the difference between informing you and changing your behavior. So, so it's almost as if there's a distinction in product, right? We don't want to sell you a Coke or a Pepsi. We actually want to sell you um, a way of life, a way uh, I guess, I suppose, a better way of life, or at least that's the implication. And and when we do that, we're going to create more power for us and more wealth at the same time. Like, it, it, or, is, or that, is, just, that a, no, is that an oversimplification? Well, I mean, it's, it's even just to, to, to say, well, you know, drink this Coke and then drink this Pepsi and, and, and let us kind of analyze what we can, let's take what we can glean from, from that action um, and use it, you know, and, and, and compile it over, you know, 500 people or a thousand people, maybe not the best example, but the point is, is, is really, you know, how you behave in relation to that either product or that, uh, that stimulus or that situation, um, as opposed to what you think about it, because then you can learn so much more about people, um, that is, that is marketable that you can sell, you know, it becomes, it becomes a product. And that's exactly what's happened with big data. As Richard was saying, you know, you can then go to advertisers and say, Hey, look, you know, we, we've, we've learned this much about this entire population um, and it's relevant to you for this and this and this reason. And you can use this to sell your products in this way. I mean, that's probably on the more innocuous end. Then, of course, you have the political uh, side of that, which becomes a lot, a lot more malevolent uh, potentially. Um, but, but yeah, that was the innovation of that time was understanding that it's not about what people think. It's about what they do. Mm. So, so you, you, you end, I think with, uh, was her Nick, uh, I can't remember her full name right now, but Tiger Claus, who's a, a very important <laughs> part of this, this story. Uh, her name is Kunvila Pandan. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Such a, I just, her, 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 a bit of her personality really comes through, which is, which is, which is utterly brilliant. But, but I, it's a little bit more of, of that sense of change and pushing back and, um, pushing back against the status quo actually can get us somewhere, can be meaningful. Uh, you know, the, you, 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 the moral arc does bend towards justice. Do you, do you guys, are you guys hopeful? I mean, I mean, do you believe that is, I mean, you, and then I think I want to follow that up with a question. Is that kind of what you're hoping people, one of the things, at least there's many things, but one of the things people take away that sense of, you know what, maybe it is time to write that article. Maybe it is time to step into politics. I can, I can also affect change too. So David, we don't, uh, we don't allow ourselves the luxury of hope. Um, we're here in South Africa. We have dogs in the fight. Uh, we do mm. this work every day. We battle these creatures every day. Um, and th the truth of the matter is that what our film shows is that in a very particular instance here in South Africa in 2017, the South African people were able to expose what Bell Pottinger was doing for Jacob Zuma, our former president, and a deeply corrupt leader. We were able to expose what he was doing. We were able to show the public very simply, without any tricks, what was happening because of good dogged, hardcore investigative journalism. We showed everybody what was happening. And once people had this information, which again, wasn't bullshit, it was very simple, they were free to do with it what they wished. And what they wished was to rise up, not only on the ground, and there were big protests on the ground, but also on Twitter, where the very weapons that Bell Pottinger were using against us to racially divide us were all of a sudden turned on them. South Africans are very sophisticated at this stage about how Twitter works, about who lies on Twitter and why. And so that experience of battling Bell Pottinger has taught us certain tricks and has made us understand how dangerous these tools can be. Now, that doesn't make us any more coherent a society, largely because we are so unequal, so divided, and the wounds of apartheid have not been allowed to heal. Nonetheless, we did rise up as a unified mass and get rid of Jacob Zuma. And I think that is a lesson for the world. Mm. Yeah, That's you good. know, I think, and I, you know, that was such a, that was such an amazing time to live through. And I think, I think it really, 
it meant so much to to those of us who did and who were here and, and were part of it. Um, and I think since then, it's I think there has been a sense of well, you know, what next? We were able to do this, and now we've kind of fallen back into our morose, morose, unhopeful ways. Um, but I think as it relates to uh, disinformation and and this kind of what feels like this increasingly endless amount of noise and chaos that we're being kind of exposed to uh, with information online, uh, which is where so many of these battles are now taking place. Uh, you know, I think it's very easy to to feel completely inundated with with negativity and 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 with this information. Um, but you know, what we've come to learn in the last uh, few days, weeks, months is that there is there is a concerted effort to try to combat these factors. Uh, in 2016, nobody was nobody was using the word disinformation. Fake news was a was a Trumpian invention. Um, you know, it's not that those tools weren't around; they just weren't being used by every Tom, Dick, and Harry to to create chaos for various different reasons, being their monetization or political gain or whatever. But the point is just that you know nobody was paying any attention and, and nobody really took it seriously. Um, and and then it exploded, and now it's the reality that we live in. Um, but what's happened in that in that time is that there are you know there are people who understand how to hunt these uh, these kind of what they call bad actors or malevolent actors down and shut them off at the source. Um, and companies like Facebook and Twitter, while you know I believe very much part of the problem, uh, who have much much more work that they need to do and contribute. Are you know are giving resources and putting resources towards um, empowering analysts and researchers to understand and learn about um, you know fake news, so-called fake news and disinformation, where it comes from and why it's being used, and trace it all the way down the line and shut it down and take it down and try to make sure that it doesn't spring up again. So you know there is there is a fight back. It's 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 still small and I think it's it still feels a little overwhelmed at this point, but. I do think that people are starting to come around to the idea that this is unsustainable. Our societies cannot live in these in these um, these echo chambers of just noise and chaos. It's it's, it's overwhelming and it, it it creates fear. It creates division, and we've got enough of that already. So I think there's definitely a sense that this needs to be tackled. And I think slowly but surely over the, the days and weeks, and and hopefully as a result of of COVID nineteen, um, there will be more of um, you know there'll be more impetus to really figure out how to tackle this and get things back to some kind of balance in that regard. And David, one, one important thing, these weapons are very, very real. The Russians, the Chinese, they are far less concerned, if they're concerned at all, with what we think of as conventional kinetic weapons. They are concerned primarily with non-kinetic weapons. In other words, disinformation, malevolent information. But these are weapons that can only be useful in certain conditions. And the conditions are this. When you are someone going to work at Tim, Tim Hortons for 14 bucks an hour, you have to travel two hours into the city of Toronto because rent in Toronto is 2000 2500 bucks a month. In other words, your existence is so economically perilous that you, in fact, see that the world around you is completely unsustainable. Mm where there are others in the city who are living completely different lives. So our societies are so classed and so divided along economic lines and also ethnic lines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that these weapons are very, very, very easily detonated. And the effects, as we've seen all over the world, can be completely devastating. So if you want to fix the disinformation pro uh, problem, Go right ahead. Go dig up all the, 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 the bad actors on Facebook that you want. But until we address the core issues in our societies, I can tell you right now, and Diana can reconfirm it, there is no way to fix misinformation weapons. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. I think unfortunately that's that's where we're going to have to wrap it up. I know you guys have a, a another call or meeting coming up, and 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 I, you know what I love about great films like this? They're just so layered. There's so much going on, uh, so much more going on than meets the eye. And after 42 minutes, I feel like we 
barely scratched the surface. It's fantastic. I hope you can hear the smile in my voice, um, in the tone of my voice. Um, I, I just want to say thank you to you both for, for taking the time today to chat about your film. And the film, by the way, folks, is Influence, uh, influence.film. Uh, you can find it online. And maybe, uh, maybe, Diana, you could just sort of help us wrap up here by talking a little bit about how it's going to be airing very soon, CBC Hot Docs at Home, but also a part of the festival this year, which is all going to be online. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're very happy to be part of the Hot Docs Festival and also as a film that's been supported uh, very generously by Hot Docs. So it's a big deal for us. We were really looking forward to being in Toronto. But nevertheless, the film will be on uh, CBC uh, and CBC Gem at 8 p.m. on the 21st of May and at 9 p.m. on Documentary Channel. And we, we do hope people will tune in. Uh, I believe that it's in the, the usual uh, national hockey slot. So uh, I hope people won't be too resentful um, of the fact that you're <laughs> right. not, uh, putting guys in, uh, uh, you know, with hockey sticks and big masks on, but uh, hopefully this will be somewhat entertaining. <laughs> it will yes. be bloodier and nastier, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Richard, I think the title of your next film should be The Luxury of Hope. <laughs> you know what? That's, like that. uh, that's, that's actually not bad. Yeah, we'll, it's we'll not bad, right? Or at, right. Least, or at least maybe your autobiography. Is that a possibility? Yeah, yeah we'll work yeah. on it. We'll, uh, I'll yeah, work. You'll work on it. Listen, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we've, been, we've been talking with uh, Diana Neal and Richard Publeck about their new film, Influence, here today on Face to Face. Thanks again for, for joining us. Thank you so thank much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.